within a matter of 18 months, I had flipped 10 houses and started realizing that I could take all of those proceeds and invest into my first larger scale entitlement project. In the second chapter, I basically found three or four different small scale projects where I could basically prove the theory that you could get the entitlements by creating some sort of value. And in that, I kind of broke it down into like doing a lot split with additional units on to sell different parcels or doing a condo conversion where I could sell different units. Or the biggest project was basically a multi-unit entitlement project for like 40 units on you know very underutilized land close to transit. Within the next 18 months, I had made a couple million dollars from just selling those entitlements to other developers. This is the We Love Real Estate Podcast. My name is Sean and I love real estate. In this weekly podcast, we interview the top real estate investors and professionals who share their knowledge and expertise to help you become a real estate investing boss. So if you love real estate and want to level up your investment game, then you've come to the right place. And now, on to the show. What's going on, investors? And welcome to episode 269 of the We Love Real Estate Podcast with Sean Pan. On today's episode, we have Chris Porto. Chris is the founder and CEO of Smart Growth Inc., a real estate development company based in California, and he's also the founder and CEO of Smart Growth Developer Academy. In this episode, Chris will share how he started getting into real estate development, how he started his company, and how he was able to earn millions of dollars within 18 months. We'll discuss the process of entitling deals, the best marketing approaches, how to finance them, and the risk involved. Chris will also go over the essential team members that you will need to start development deals. So if you want to learn more about how to get into real estate development, then you need to listen to this episode. As always, if you're an active real estate investor and you need a hard money loan for your next project, then you can reach out to me directly at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Enjoy the show and I'll see you next week. Chris, thank you so much for being on our show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself. Let us know who you are and tell us what you do. Sure. Thanks, Sean, for having me. My name is Chris Porto. I'm a founder and CEO of Smart Growth, Inc., It's a real estate development and investment company based in California. Uh, We basically look for higher development opportunities in uh, mixed-use, urban infill, transit-oriented markets. And essentially what we are looking for are ways to move real estate through the development lifecycle from early stage opportunities that are unentitled to identifying the opportunity and securing the entitlements potentially looking at an exit at that point, or consider actually building the projects to eventually get to an operating income property. I'm also the founder of the Smart Growth Developer Academy, uh, which is a comprehensive suite of training programs that I've created over the years in basically learning how to get into real estate development. And essentially it's been all of the things that I've learned to try and understand how to do this myself. And I've had a lot of success. I've also been experiencing some failures. So a lot of lessons to be learned from my trajectory. And really the effort has been to try and teach people how to take this on just because I'm such a big believer in creating a a new society, basically trying to build more housing, more office, more retail, every type of real estate. It's such the vehicle for our lives. So the more people that can participate in that, the better. Yeah. And Chris, I'm super happy to have you on our show. You know, I've known you since I think 2017 and, uh, you know, your story was very interesting because unlike all the other speakers who go to meetups to talk about fixing and flipping houses, you are talking about new development projects. And for many investors, that is a very scary thing to do, right? Like it's scary enough to fix and flip a house, let alone try to do new development and creating like beautiful townhouses or new centers or whatever. So how did you get into real estate development? Yeah. So I started getting into real estate in 2014. 
you know, the only way that I figured out how to get into real estate was to go through one of the traditional fix and flipping training programs called Fortune Builders. And I soaked up everything I possibly could. And they really helped me understand how I could start making money by sourcing opportunities, really just in a single family space. Uh, and then eventually actually buy properties to fix and flip them. That was the traditional way to get in early as a real estate investor. And so I started doing that. I started wholesaling deals. I started buying uh, single families to fix and flip. And that was all great, but I knew that I wanted to create a bigger impact. And I created my whole company, Smart Growth, on the premise of you know, needing to facilitate the evolution of our urban environment to make it a more sustainable society to live in. So you know, I didn't really understand how to actually start creating more of an impact until I understood what zoning was all about. And you know, I was taught early on that you want to get out of the city as quick as possible because you want to actually flip the house. But as I started to understand what zoning was all about and really it defining the potential of what a property can become, that's really where I started to see that there is a significant opportunity in finding pieces of property in zones that are already envisioned for a higher and better use. Oftentimes like a higher density residential project, like an apartment building or townhomes, as you were describing, something like that, more than just, you know, incrementally improving the single family home. I started to recognize that the goal was actually to find opportunities that could be envisioned and getting approved by the city so that either I could take them on, but I knew that the process was a lot easier than the actual construction of a huge project. So I, I understood and I started learning that many developers actually just get the approvals and then sell them to the larger developers because some of those developers don't actually like to take the risk of going through the approval process. So it really became an understanding of zoning and also tying that with a financial analysis to say, if I could buy it as raw land or something that was underutilized, like a car wash, which is kind of one of the, the first examples that I ended up buying, you know, if I could buy it for X, create value through the entitlement process and sell it for Y, then the next developer could justify Y as the price to then shoot for the end value of the constructed building at Z. So that was really kind of the understanding of like, where do the numbers work to be able to go through that whole life cycle? How long did it take you from you know joining Fortune Builders and just getting your feet wet into real estate to thinking, okay, I can take on these bigger projects and start doing entitlement? It was probably 18 months. I mean, like literally within a matter of 18 months, I had flipped probably 10 houses in Oakland, California, and then basically started realizing that I could take all of those proceeds and invest into my first larger scale entitlement project. And so in that, that was kind of my first chapter. In the second chapter, in finding these opportunities, I basically found three or four different small scale projects where I could basically prove the theory that you could get the entitlements by creating some sort of value. And in that, I kind of broke it down into like doing a lot split uh, with you know additional units on to sell different parcels or doing a condo conversion where I could sell different units. Get, these are all just the approvals. Or the biggest project was basically a multi-unit entitlement project for like 40 units on you know very underutilized land close to transit. So that was really kind of what I felt like my next chapter was. And you know, so after that first 18 months and finally understanding what zoning was all about and then executing on that new strategy. Within the next 18 months, you know, I had made a couple million dollars from just selling those entitlements to other developers. They, they, there was all different partnerships to actually pull those off. 
but that I felt like was a much more profitable strategy and also alleviate a lot of the headaches that most fix and flippers go through of having to be on site every day and trying to move things forward and dealing with all the construction related uh, issues that you that arise as opposed to just getting comfortable with the administrative process where you actually can create a lot more value by taking something that's highly underutilized and actually getting the approvals for a much better use and then selling it to a larger developer. But obviously there's risks in that category as well. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's crazy though. First of all, like to do 10 flips within 18 months of finishing a program is amazing. Like I don't think I've heard of anyone else who is that successful in such a short period of time. Uh, I've taken one of those bootcamp courses. Yeah. I mean, it was, I definitely jumped in head first and as I've been doing, and as most developers are kind of that sort of optimistic, I kind of went for like the portfolio strategy where like, I knew that I could take on a bunch of projects at the same time. And some of them may not be as successful as others. So I was kind of going into it with the mentality of taking on as many projects as I could, knowing that some of them were not going to actually work out. Most of them did. Most of them worked out very well, uh, especially in an upward trending market. But uh, yeah, it was a lot. And my tendency has been to take on more projects probably than I necessarily should. Um, but again, I've always been you know, trying to get as much experience as I could in the early stages of my real estate development career as, as possible. Yeah, for sure. So how do you get, how did you learn about development? Like, do you just try to figure it out? Do you talk to somebody? What was your process like? I gravitated to the Urban Land Institute, ULI. And ULI is kind of the global association for real estate developers and the whole development industry. It's an, an amazing organization. And I basically started reading the textbooks that they had written about real estate development. I went through a professional certificate program to understand real estate development and basically absorb as much as knowledge as I could from that institution. And they really teach real estate development from an academic perspective, right? You know, a lot of the master's programs that you go through out there are all teaching from the ULI textbooks. It's an amazing organization. And I actually got you know, into a, the small scale development council uh, within ULI. So I started networking with a lot of established real estate developers across the country. And they have different meetings you know, a couple of times a year. And I could basically travel to different cities and understand how development is done across the board. But you know, the trouble with that is that they don't really have a lot of curriculum around being a real estate entrepreneur. And that's really where the fix and flip type of training programs came in really handy because they were teaching people like how to start your business, how to like get into this with like no money, you know, to start with and actually start making money quick. And so, you know, my effort, I think really has been trying to merge like the real estate entrepreneur programs with like the fortune builders program, for example, with like the academic understanding of real estate development and try and kind of merge that understanding together so I can help people understand how they can make money quicker and in a sustainable way by both doing, you know, the, the smaller scale stuff, but also with an eye towards doing bigger development projects eventually. Yeah. So can you tell us about your first few projects? Like, how did you find them? What did you do? And what was that whole process like? Yeah. I mean, you know, in the fix and flip training programs that I went through, a lot of it was like direct mailing, right? So direct mailing was like the thing that I felt like I could really get my hands around and just start reaching out to property. You know, that worked really well for the fix and flip sort of market, you know, and, and I started to apply that in some of the commercial space as well with, um, you know, apartment buildings and ended up assigning some pretty significant deals to earn a substantial amount of income. I've always been clear that, you know, to make money in real estate, you have to actually get a direct relationship with the property owners and try and negotiate a price that really works 
to be able to actually proceed to the next phases. With the development projects, I actually started just looking on the market. And, and the beautiful thing about development is that like, it actually takes a substantial amount of effort to create the value that is being proposed. So a lot of stuff that's on the market can actually work as a development project because it, again, takes you know, a certain vision for what's there, what the underlying zoning allows for. And then you know, the understanding of how do you acquire something that's unentitled and actually get it uh, entitled and the costs associated with that and what can you sell it for on the other side. So a lot of people don't really understand that. So stuff that's on the market, it works a lot better than, you know, for example, in the residential space. Like if you see a house on Redfin, more than likely it's not going to be a good flip because there's so many people that will jump on that and drive the price up. Whereas in the commercial space, like LoopNet, LoopNet is a great way to just start going through those listings and start to see that there are development opportunities on there that are priced according to what's currently there and not saying that the future value is already baked into the price. Some people try and do that, but there's a substantial amount of effort that has to go into creating that value. The other thing that I've really started getting back into is cold calling. Cold calling works a lot better for targeted opportunities. And with development opportunities in particular, it's a much more targeted effort than just saying, I want to you know, source any single family home in this entire city that meets these certain criteria. With direct calling development site owners, it's actually looking at the zoning map and pinpointing which sites you see in that zone and what is currently there and seeing that there's an opportunity to take it from what's currently there to what's potentially there based upon the zoning. So cold calling works a lot better because it's a much more of a direct marketing approach as opposed to a mass marketing approach with mailing campaigns. That being said, I've started contemplating like more ways to actually do mass marketing for an entire zone. For example, like if it's a higher density townhome site zone, but there's a bunch of single families, that's a list that you can basically create using like property radar or something like that and creating a polygon around that zone, which, you know, the zoning is actually not overlaid with the real estate data. And so that's where there's still a huge opportunity because, you know, people aren't correlating that very well right now. And so there's a lot more effort that has to go into figuring out where the development opportunities reside and then trying to figure out how to get in touch with the property owners. Yeah. So just to reiterate, um, you're saying that there is a map out there that you can find that shows you the different zoning of like the cities or whatnot. Like this is a zone for multifamily housing. This is zone for single family housing. This is zone for commercial, et cetera. And if you happen to find a property that's misused, right? Like say, like you said, a single family home in a multifamily zone area with a huge lot. You're like, wait a minute, I can buy this house at market value or because more. I know that I can do the entitlement and then sell it as a full, like ready to build kind of package to a developer. Exactly. And that's where it becomes almost a win-win scenario because you can get in contact with that single family homeowner and you can pay them arguably more than what their current value is because you're relying on getting the future value of the entitled site that another builder would actually buy it for, then you're actually paying them more and you are then being able to achieve a higher value and, and oftentimes create substantial profit in that effort. Yeah. So yeah, I think that's, that's a perfect example of one of those types of opportunities to look for. So how do you finance a deal like this? Well, you know, when you're proposing a development to a property owner, and oftentimes able to pay them more than their current value, they'll most of the time give you some level of flexibility in the contract where you don't even have to buy the deal. 
right? So you could essentially get into contract with somebody at a particular price, but with a contingency that's long enough to allow you to navigate the zoning approval. So there's a lot of different contracts, you know, whether it's a longer zoning contingency or a lease option where you could lease the property for a period of time and then, you know, get the approvals during that period of time that you're leasing the property to then create that higher value. So, you know, those are kind of the alternative strategies. Otherwise, you know, if it's a an existing single family home in a higher density area that can accommodate say 10 townhomes, you could basically just buy it in its current form. You could finance it as just a single family home and get 80% debt, for example. The more commercial related opportunities where there's not that great of, a, uh, of an income profile associated with it. Like my, the, the first larger scale development that I did, again, it was like a tire shop, a car wash and a taco truck, like on a corner lot. So it was just kind of riffraff. And so with that, because we couldn't kind of negotiate a longer contingency period to get the approvals, the property owners basically wanted us to buy it firsthand. We were still able to get some debt on it but most lenders, and these were hard money lenders, because most conventional lenders won't actually finance a site that has development potential, because it's uncertain for them what value you're going to be creating. So for that, we had to basically finance it only with 50% debt. So we could only get 50% leverage, leaving another 50% of not only the purchase, but the whole development budget that needed to be financed with equity. And so equity financing really became something that I, I had to wrap my head around how to structure an LLC that was going to purchase the property that needed to raise a substantial amount of money from private individuals who would invest into the project with us. So, and in understanding what that was all about, essentially it was a syndication that we had to come up with where, you know, there was me and two other partners who were the general partners. And then we all respectively raised a third of the money that had to go into the pot. And those investors were given different streams of returns based upon what the three of us decided our investors would need to participate in this process with us. And I think if I can recall correctly, I had some sort of waterfall. So there's different ways to split up profits with your equity investors. Either you just give them a, a straight up split, like a 50-50 split, or you can give them a return, like a, a preferred return, and then they can split you know, some profits above and beyond that. So I was able to give a very high return to my investor who came in with a third of the money that we needed, but I kept basically the rest. So I think I probably gave her like a 40% return on her money. And that 40% return on the money that she put in was great, but the profits above and beyond that were huge. And I was able to structure it in such a way to keep everything above and beyond that. Wow. So it was kind of my first attempt at, at doing some sort of syndication, but in the development space, it's really important to understand how to form an LLC and raise private money because most of the time you're not going to get the type of leverage that you're able to get in the single family fix and flip space. Right. For example, for that, you know, that lot, what was the purchase price on that one? I think the purchase price on that was probably 1.2 million or something like that. Okay. And then I think we put maybe 800,000 into the approvals and the financing costs associated with it. So I think our all in cost was maybe like one point or maybe two or 1.8 million. Okay. Uh, and I think we ended up selling it for like 3.6. There's like $1.8 million of profit in a matter of 18 months, just from going and getting the entitlements for the project. Yeah. So let's talk about that a little bit more. You're saying you're buying this lot for 1.2, yet the entitlements are 800,000. So kind of walk me through this that process. Like 
what are you paying for and what, who are the different parties that you need to like associate with to get this done? Yeah, no, that's a great question. The, um, and I think it was actually a total of 600,000 on top of the 1.2, if I can recall correctly, but still it's a substantial amount of money. Yeah. That most of that money was actually spent on the interest for the, le- for the debt. It's so, 18 months of hard money, right? Exactly. 18 months yeah. of hard money at whatever, 10%, 50% of the project. So we probably borrowed like 600,000 of 1.2, 10% on that. Like that's a substantial amount of money. Call that a third of the total project costs were interest. And, you know, for me, it was kind of like, as most developers do, because you're not banking on the interim cash flow most of the time. So you have to factor in negative cash flow as just a project expense. So a third of those expenses, call it, was towards interest payment. The other two thirds were the architect, right? The architect's probably the biggest piece of the equation. Most of the time, and this is important to, to realize, you can learn a lot about the potential structure that can go onto a building by just interpreting the zoning code and using you know, graph paper to sketch out what generally speaking, the size of the building will be, how many units that you can get. You don't have to be an architect to do that. And the more that you can understand how to sketch that out yourself, that's where you can start to see and actually correlate that to a financial model. But when you actually have to get approvals, you're going to have to hire a licensed architect, right? Because the city's going to want to see official plans that take into account all of the zoning and the building code requirements that you need. So architects are probably the most important person. A surveyor, right? Because we're talking about land here. The surveyor becomes a very important part, almost a fundamental part, because you're actually needing to understand the underlying land that you're going to be building on. And the architect is essentially envisioning a building based upon the survey that they come up with as kind of the template, if you will. You know, there's other people that are part of the process too. A civil engineer is usually very important, right? Because they have to start thinking about, you know, what are the the other constraints associated with the property, whether it's drainage or it's utility lines that have to be trenched in or grading of the property to get it, you know, flat enough if you're building on a flat lot to build that building. The structural engineer is usually good to bring into the equation early on because, you know, there's a very important thing to understand when it comes to different building types, right? So for example, if you just build a flat foundation or a kind of a a slab on grade and then wood frame construction on top, that's not that difficult to do. But if you start to get up to the higher density stuff where you have to build a concrete podium and then build wood frame construction on top of that there's major cost considerations to actually build that structure. So talking to a structural engineer early on, even through this, the entitlement process or the zoning approval process is important because you, want, you do want to have an eye towards what the total building is going to cost for the next developer because they're going to be underwriting the deal when they buy the entitlement from you with the costs for that construction type in mind. Obviously, the city fees are probably the biggest piece that has to be thought of. The city fees, though, are, are oftentimes not that expensive through the zoning approval process. Most of the city fees come through the building department. And what I'm trying to explain to people is that this initial approval process is just through the zoning department. And the approvals that you get from that point on, that's when it really becomes a marketable asset to another developer. Because essentially, you have a piece of paper with the development rights to now build that building that you envisioned and gotten approved from the city. And I oftentimes don't tell people to go through the building department process unless they really know that they're going to build that building. Or if you've planned out a building that like that's, you absolutely know that that's the best and highest use for that project. 
Otherwise, the next developer may go and change the approvals. And then all the building plans that you've gotten are pretty much out the door because they've decided to change the plan. That's actually what happened on that larger scale development project that we did is that that next developer bought it and decided they could get more units into the project and change the mass of the structure. And they actually decided to build 100% affordable housing on the project. So, you know, it was, I think, a win in many regards because we were able to get something approved early on. They came in, they bought it, they changed it up to fit their program, and then they eventually built it. And now it's providing 100% affordable housing in a market that is desperate for that. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So that's a good point. I think a lot of people don't know this, right? That there's two departments. There's the planning department and then there's the building department. And like you mentioned, the planning department is the one who's going to review the plans that the architect makes, um, make sure that everything's up to code. And then when you actually want to build though, you need a separate permit and that's a whole other process. Can you talk about like timeframes? Like for example, this took 18 months. What was that breakdown in the timeline for each phase? It's really important. And it's really a function of which market that you're in. And when I say market, I'm talking about like what city, because like even in the Bay area, for example, every single city is its own market with its own dynamics and its own timeframes and its own risk profile. So, you know, when you're talking about getting entitlements for deals, it's really down at that micro level. It's at the city level. And for example, Oakland and Berkeley are polar opposites, but they're right next to each other. But the zoning codes are written in a different way where they allow for more development to get approved administratively versus actually involving the public. And this is something that I really kind of deciphered in understanding not only the zoning code, but also the approval process. And oftentimes the approval process is described in the zoning code. There's really two things that the zoning code does. It, it talks about the standards that you have to adhere to for the potential building itself. And then it's also the approvals and what you can do within what level of approval process. So for example, like over-the-counter approvals versus something that you present to the zoning department and they can give you that approval just with their administration versus getting triggered up into like the planning commission or in the worst case, the city council, if you're asking for some sort of major variance or a rezoning. And it's amazing to me that I talk to people about, you know, seeking entitlements for development opportunities. Immediately, for some reason, everybody thinks you have to rezone something. And that's not, a, that's not what I'm talking at all. It's not about rezoning. I'm talking about staying within the current guidelines of the zoning code to get something approved based upon what they've already defined that they will allow approvals for versus changing the zoning altogether. That's a much higher level strategy in the development game. And it comes with a lot more risk. So as far as timing goes, you know, you can go to places like Texas, you could essentially walk into the planning department and they'll approve it right on the spot, right? Because they don't really have the same sort of restrictions that other markets have. In contrast, California, you could spend multiple years going through the zoning approval process because, you know, again, depending upon what they allow you to do, you might have to go through different public hearings and incorporate the comments from every person in the city about the project that you're approving. With our particular project, I think we were able to, you know, design it within, call it three months. Then we were able to get it approved within a year. And then we were able to sell it within another three months. So that was kind of, I'd say a relatively realistic timeframe, typically a year or maybe two years. And then from there, you know, you have to actually sell the property. So when you have it, 
I guess, designed in three months, what goes on during that year that, you know, like what, what happens during that time frame? Yeah. I mean, typically you get the design and you submit it to the city and then they basically file an application and they then start their review process. Usually you're having to get a use permit and you're having, you're having to get a design review. So the use, for example, in this case, it was like riffraff commercial, but we want to get it approved for a use for ground floor retail and residential apartments on top. That's basically the permit that we're asking for. And then they also want to understand like what the building is going to look like and does it adhere to their design preferences. And just, you know, those design preferences are, are more at like the city planner level. They don't, they're not described necessarily in the code. There's some constraints that have to be factored in by the architect, but, you know, design review committee and, you know, different cities have different people who participate in something like that. They're going to actually look at what does the building look like? And, you know, what materials are you going to be using? Because they really, the zoning department really cares about what the building looks like from the outside perspective, from the city at large. Are they going to like the look of it? Are they going to approve how tall the building is going to be? And they'll also look at how many units can get onto the site. And it's important to highlight that the most important metric in the zoning code that I or any developer who's doing residential needs to look at is the residential density. The residential density basically tells you how many units that you can get onto a particular property based upon the lot area. And that lot area and you know, the overlaid density metric, that's really the thing that will immediately tell you if there's development potential. So when I look on LoopNet, for example, I'll immediately ask myself, what zone is that property in? And then I'll go to the zoning code and I'll look for, is there a residential density metric? Like, a thousand or one unit for every thousand square feet of lot area. If I have a 10,000 square foot lot in question, I know I can get 10 units onto that site. Now, it's a matter of how you're going to accommodate that. But if I know that there is some spread between what's currently there and how many units can get, can get onto that site, I know there's something worthwhile digging a little bit deeper in. That's uh, something that I've, I've constantly highlighted for folks, just as like the, the, immediate rule of thumb of whether there's potential to the site. Yeah. And while we're on that topic, how do you analyze your deals? So you know how much you can even offer a seller in the first place. That's ultimately where the rubber hits the road, right? Is actually doing the financial modeling. My background, I, I majored in finance. I, you know, prior to getting into real estate, I was part of a project finance group for a solar energy company. I've recognized financial modeling as like the core skill set that you need in order to do investment deals or development deals. But the development, the entitlement space in particular is very unique because we're talking about two phases of a project, talking about getting the entitlements and then selling the entitlements such that the entitlement value is worth it for the next phase of the project. The developer needs to buy it at that new price and build it, incur all the construction costs, and then either lease it up or sell all the units to hit their future value for the end building. So the financial analysis that I do basically projects out all the way to the end of the built building. And again, either on an income basis where I'm projecting out the future net operating income and dividing that by a cap rate for the end value of that building, or I'm looking at the condo value. If I sold every single one of those units, either as townhomes or you know, condo project, what is that total value going to be? And then essentially what I need to do is then delete out or take into account the construction costs 
for that building, right? So you have the future value minus the total costs of construction, including all of the soft costs, right? So it's hard costs, soft costs, buying, holding, and financing costs, and anything else that you have to incur during that time frame that you build the building. So essentially, the model that I've come up with is like two snapshots. It's the second phase of the project where you project out the future value and you figure out what can somebody, another developer, pay me for that land. Oftentimes, we call that the residual value, such that they're going to hit a profit projection. Call it a 20% profit margin. Actually, in development, the most important metric is the yield on cost. The yield on cost is essentially the NOI divided by the total cost. And that yield on cost metric is directly comparable to the cap rate. And really what you need to do is compare the yield on cost projection to the exit cap rate. And if there's sufficient spread between those two metrics, then you have a profitable deal that directly correlates to the profit margin. It's just another way of describing it. But for developers, the yield on cost metric is the thing that you need to be targeting. And you know, as I learned from one of the, the kind of the legends in the commercial real estate industry, George Marcus of Marcus and Millichap, who was in my small scale developer council, he basically said, if you have a deal that has a spread between the exit cap rate and the yield on cost of like 1.25, right? So if the exit cap rate is a four and you build to a, a five and a quarter yield on cost, then there's sufficient spread there to make the deal worthwhile. And usually that's probably like a 20% profit mark. So what I'm basically saying is that I have to justify a price for the entitlement such that the next developer can make a 20% profit margin or hit a 1.25 yield spread. So if I, if I know that that's what another developer is able to pay for that theoretical building or that building site, then I need to figure out what I need to pay for it at the current raw land value to then pay for the entitlements and spend that 18 months such that my future value, my entitlement value is going to produce a substantial amount of profit for me. Do you have like a, in your, your own analysis, like what kind of profit are you expecting to even take on a deal like this? It ranges. I mean, I would say a 30% profit margin is probably something that's worthwhile to consider. Oftentimes I'm just now trying to correlate like effort compared to like potential profit. Like I'll look at a deal and I'll say, well, if I can make a million dollars on this in two years, is that worth it for me to take the risk of buying something? It's also a function of what's currently there. So like, I like really finding covered land plays right now. So like a commercial building that's generating some sort of income that you can put a decent amount of debt on to acquire it, but to get the approvals in the meantime, knowing that I'm going to knock down that building later. Right. So, so it's all a matter of risk and reward. And, you know, when people are buying commercial property, they're not necessarily thinking about like the underlying zoning potential, but it's a great way to protect your downside and it reduces the risk, right? So you don't have to make as much if you have something that's already cash flowing based upon what you're buying it in its current form. But you know that there's a potential huge exit if you can get the entitlements for a high rise or uh, you know a multi-story apartment building, or if you can subdivide the lots uh, or build something on the excess land that you can get 
by buying what's there currently. And to the financial modeling piece, my Smart Growth Developer Academy has these financial models that I've created that allow you to kind of quickly analyze those sorts of deals. And there's also a tremendous amount of training where it even talks about like, what are the things to look for? What types of projects to look for? And what would you say are some of the risks of doing this type of real estate investing or some things that new investors should look out for? I'd say the biggest risk, and most of the time, it's not a matter of if you're going to get approved for a project, like an entitlement project, it's a matter of when, right? So the timing is the thing that can really mess you up if you're going to seek for an entitlement, especially if it's more, it's, if it's very substantial, that's going to, um, you know, involve the public. Um, so, and then, you know, whether you can actually do what you want to do within the current guidelines. So if you can understand the approval process, and if you can pr uh, uh, propose a project within the current guidelines, those are probably the two, two main factors to consider the two main risk factors when it comes to like pursuing development opportunities. You know, the other thing to be concerned about is whether you can actually sell the entitlement, right? Cause the buyer pool is a lot less in the development space. There's a lot less builders than there are single family home buyers, for example. So you got to make sure that, that you are comfortable exiting at a price that actually makes sense to the developer buyer, right? Because if, you've proposed a project that just doesn't make sense for the price that you need to exit for really you only have one option and that option is for you to build it right maybe you're not going to make as much on the exit after the entitlement but you got to be ready to actually go to the next phase if you have to if there's not a market there to sell the entitlement and that's happened to me before so my first ground up new construction project uh, is a six unit building four stories in north oakland Essentially, I tried to test the market after the entitlements to see if I could get a number that I would be happy with, but I couldn't. So I basically said, all right, I'm going to build it. And it was my first ground up construction project. And I felt like, you know, now is the time to actually get my ground up construction experience. Because I, you know, I ultimately, I don't want to just be the guy that sells entitlements. I would love to be the guy that actually builds stuff. That's really where the full value creation is realized. But there's so many things that can go wrong during construction. And I'm going through some pretty crazy situations right now of the construction phase going awry. You got to be ready to go forward through the construction. And there's a lot of constraints to, that will inhibit you from doing that. For example, like your net worth has to be at a certain degree or at a certain height in order to get a construction loan. You have to have liquidity, right? You have to have a certain amount of cash in the bank compared to that net worth. You have to have construction experience. Right. So if you've never constructed anything and you're forced to have to build something, you know, there, and there's ways to get around all these things, oftentimes by bringing on partners and partnering with people has always been one of the main strategies that I've taken on to offset the risks that I'm describing here. So, you know, whether it's partnering with a general contractor or it's partnering with a high net worth individual who has a lot more cash, a lot more net worth than you to get the construction loan, there's a variety of ways to, you know, bring people on to offset that. But I would say that that is the thing that you really need to be aware of is, you know, what the timing is based upon the approval process, what you're proposing within the current guidelines and, you know, an eye towards an exit value such that you can confidently sell it at entitlements, making enough profit for yourself and leaving enough profit in the deal for the next developer. If your exit value is too high, you're going to have to basically build it in order to preserve 
any value that you thought that you created. Yeah. And, you know, going back to, I guess, finding people in the first place, if you're a new investor, you've never done this before, how do you go about finding these people? Like, how do you find the right architect, the right structural engineer, and even the right buyer? Yeah, I think that's a, a really good point. And this is something that I've been getting back to recently because I've, I've entered a, a few new markets. And when you enter into a new market, you have to kind of be a beginner again, right? Because the same network doesn't necessarily apply. The same rules don't apply. The same zones don't apply. So it's like, you got to go into it with a completely fresh mind. And I've recently done that on a, in a few markets on the peninsula of the Bay Area. And the reason I've done that is because most of the larger scale developers that I talk to all tell me that the peninsula is where you can actually make deals work because the rents are high enough to justify the construction costs that are happening in the Bay Area. So usually, and I would highly recommend everybody start networking with developers, whether it's small scale developers or larger national scale developers. If you can get into those networks and start to talk to them and understand what they're looking for, then you can start targeting your efforts to sites and opportunities that would actually make sense for them. So in entering to a new market, one of the easiest and best places to start in understanding who is participating in the market is the website of the city. Oftentimes they'll publish like the development projects that have already been submitted for approval. And if you go through those plans, usually there's contact information for every single developer who owns the site. And so right there, that becomes kind of your buyer pool for people who are in the market doing deals, doing building projects, or just looking at, you know, what's actually being built around you and then skip tracing to figure out who are the townhome builders, who are the, the multifamily housing builders in that area. And so those are kind of some of the key steps to figuring out who your buyers will be. And then it's a matter of just going and targeting those property owners that are in zones that are conducive to the strategies that those developers are pursuing. What I'm basically doing a lot of the times now, as I started doing early on, is starting to just go and source development sites, basically start establishing relationships with the property owners and making them offers and basically putting a you know, proposal in front of them, whether it's with an LOI, letter of intent, or an actual purchase contract, and then basically saying, I can purchase this as a developer myself, or I have a huge network of other developers that can stand behind that price. And that's where you know, I can earn fees by passing contracts on to these other developers, or potentially earn a fee from the property owner uh, and say to them, look, I'll help you sell your site for a fee. And not even as a licensed broker, but just someone who's going to find them a developer buyer who will actually perform the project in its entirety. Right. Like a wholesaler. Exactly. And yeah. wholesaling is something that I learned early on in the fix and flip game. Wholesaling works all the way up the value chain in real estate, whether it's a $100,000 deal or it's a billion dollar deal, right? All wholesaling is, and true wholesaling in my mind, is where you get into contract for X and you assign the contract for Y. So you could, buy, you could get in the contract for a single family home and you could assign the contract for $100,000. But again, it, the deal still has to make sense for the person who's buying it with the fee included. But again, it, if you have a development project that you're in contract on for $10 million and you've spent $2 million, you can assign that contract to somebody for $20 million and make $8 million as the spread. Because again, the next guy is looking at, does $20 million make sense for that entitlement project? But of course there are risks there. And 
you know, we're talking about large amounts of spread. And so you got to make sure that you're protected well enough from the seller of the property and the future buyer where that you won't get circumvented and actually, you know, they'll, they could potentially go to the property owner themselves and try and cut you out. So that's why oftentimes it, it makes more sense to actually close on it first before you then turn around and sell on it when the numbers are so large. Makes sense. And for, I guess, going back to like finding your teammates, if you're going to a new market, I'm assuming architects in different cities have different specialties and they know the yeah. zoning code better. So like, mm-hmm. how do you go about finding like a new architect or a new structural engineer? Same thing. If you look at the projects that have been proposed, you're usually going to see the same architect players in that market. And you know what I love about being a developer is that I get to kind of have a vision and then I get to hire people to bring my vision into reality. And for that reason, aligning yourself with an architect that you really like their designs becomes increasingly important. So you know when you enter into a new market or you start fresh in this space, you should interview a number of architects and say, and find somebody that you like to work with, someone who has experience, someone who has good design aesthetic, someone who has actually gotten stuff built. And this is something that's important because architects oftentimes are just glorified designers and they may have designed a bunch of really pretty buildings, but they never actually got built. It's just as important for an architect to get construction experience as a developer, because they're gonna, they learn stuff through that process too. And they, that informs how they design buildings to basically be, for example, more cost-effective. And that's something that architects don't tend to try and do. They don't try and be the most cost-effective solution. They tend to be the fanciest, you know, prettiest building out there. And then it's the general contractor that's like, I can't build that for what you're, what you're thinking that, that the developer can afford. So there's always going to be some sort of middle ground there. Uh, so yeah, those are kind of some of the criteria that I would put out there for starting to make connections with architects. And that's exactly what I did. I probably met five different architects in the Bay area and started to understand what they do and what they charge, right? Because that becomes one of your major inputs. What I love about entitlement deals too, is that your budget becomes fairly fixed up front. You can get proposals from all the people that you need to work with the city, the architect, the surveyor, the civil engineer, the structural engineer all of those, uh, any other consultants that you need to work with, you can get all those proposals from them and they're fixed proposals because it's just their time and their effort versus like a fix and flip where like you kind of try and set, or just a construction project in general, you try and set a budget, but you almost know inevitably there's going to be change orders. There's going to be things that are unknown that are going to spiral the budget out of control. So I find that the entitlement phases for these types of deals really have a relatively predictable budget associated with them. Yeah. Well, Chris, this has been an awesome conversation. Thank you again so much for coming on our show. If someone wants to get into development and entitlement, how can they find out more? Yeah. I mean, www.smartgrowthdeveloperacademy.com. It's a bit of a mouthful, but that's probably the best website to start. You can see all the different suites of trainings that I provided. There's free webinars that people can go through that I've taught. There's a bunch of free stuff on that site that people can go through and, and learn a tremendous amount of what I'm teaching. And then if they want to go deeper, they can either sign up for the essentials program, which is kind of the immediate step-by-step process for how to actually find development opportunities and look to exit or the more comprehensive signature training program, which comes with, you know, a bunch of case studies, a bunch of panel discussions, all, you know, a ton of training material. So, uh, yeah, that's probably the best place I'm on Instagram kind of, at, uh, Chris, a Porto, 
uh, I definitely admire Sean you and your your efforts around social media. So I know I need to get more involved in that space. Yeah, I, I learned it from my wife. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, I, I need help in that space, and I, I'm a forever learner. So I, I really admire people who have who've taken initiative to get into anything, whether it's social media or whether it's real estate development, and then learn from from their their ways. Awesome. Well, Chris, thank you again so much for coming on the show today, and hope to see you again soon. Thanks, John. I hope you like this episode. You can find the show notes with all the links on our site, everythingrei.com. If you like the podcast, please help us grow by giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and telling your friends to listen as well. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.